Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Before we commence, I would like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land upon which we're meeting. That's the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Respects to elders past, present and emerging and a very warm welcome um, and um, acknowledgement to First Australians in the audience. I'm Steve Simpson. I'm the Academic Director of the Charles Perkins Centre. This evening, we're going to be talking about loneliness and the Charles Perkins Centre's mission is to ease the burden of chronic disease as that relates to conditions such as obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease and related conditions, which may leave you wondering, why are we concerned about loneliness? Well, the answer to that is actually quite simple and that relates to the fact that we humans are a fantastically social species. We're social animals, and that um, tendency to group together, to work together um, socially, is the root to our success as a species, and it's deeply embedded in our biology, and that means that it's related profoundly to our physical and our mental health. So loneliness is the antithesis of social connectedness, and hence it's no surprise that it's linked um, to poor physical and mental health. And that really is what we're considering this evening. In fact, there's such, considered to be such an epidemic of loneliness at the moment, uh, that the US Surgeon General uh, warned that it is an epidemic and that loneliness has to be, and I quote here, a health priority on par with tobacco and obesity. But that's not only in the US, of course. Um, The evidence is strong that the same issues are facing us here in Australia. So we have across the University of Sydney some really brilliant researchers who are working in um, the area of loneliness, what it is, how it impacts our health, what we can do about it, First, I'm going to introduce Melody. Melody is one of our brilliant and star recruits uh, to the Charles Perkins Centre, the School of Public Health here at the University of Sydney, and she's uh, a really prominent member of the Prevention Research Centre, which are located in the School of Public Health and in the Charles Perkins Centre. Melody is an epidemiologist, population behavioural scientist, And she's really interested in the interaction between physical activity, lifestyle, built environment, how things work as a system in society to support or otherwise um, mental and um, physical health and well-being. She's passionate and committed to improving population health and uh, you're going to hear a little bit about some of her work here but especially she's turned her attention to the issue of loneliness recently Um, and she's going to tell us about that work, the impacts that loneliness has on other aspects um, of well-being. It's such a pleasure Melody, we're incredibly proud of you and um, glad that you're with us. 
Thank you so much, Steve, for the wonderful introduction. And thank you all for being here, my friends and colleagues and fellow humans, especially on the night when the materials are pl Matildas are playing. Um, thank you for giving me the time. You will still have time for the match after. I'll, I'll keep that in mind when it comes to keeping my time. <laughs> so, as Steve introduced, I'm an epidemiologist. I use large data sets to understand risk profiles and predictors of disease and health outcomes. Because I have a mission to make everybody live long and healthy. And for the most part of my career, I've been working with physical activity, sedentary behavior and diet. Those behaviors that we can observe and measure. About seven years ago, I was working with some Norwegian data sets to try to find some predictive algorithms for early death. And there's one question, one variable that really stood out. Independent of all the other known traditional risk factors, it seems to be highly correlated with early death. The question went, do you regularly participate in social activities, such as political associations or sewing clubs? Sewing clubs, yeah, that was my reaction. I laughed, did the analysis, wrote up the results, published the paper without really understand deeply and personally what that question was about. So as all the good postdocs are supposed to do, I published the paper, I didn't touch or even think about sewing clubs for years to come. Fast forward a couple of years, I was approached by an intelligent and enthusiastic young man, Daniel. You will meet him, so hold your excitement. Daniel wanted to do a PhD on loneliness. And to be honest, I had never really thought too much about loneliness up until then. But after a really intellectually engaging conversation with Daniel, I went back home and I spent the whole evening thinking and reading. I got so fascinated by this topic, particularly because it brought me back to some memories that I was trying so hard to hide. It brought me back to the time that I was the only international student in the master's and my PhD program back in the United States. My family in China, thousands of miles away, and I was trying, struggling, to find my own identity. I try hard to look American, sound American, act like American, so that I could be accepted as an American. And especially as some 20-something-year-old introverted nerd who has a very low tolerance of alcohol and parties, it was very hard for me. I tried to socialize by the American playbook, but all I remember was this serious anxiety built up days before even going to the party. And I remember being at a party, trying so hard to hold a conversation about small talks I just didn't care a thing about. And the whole time I feel like there was a spotlight shining on top of me, really magnifying every little awkwardness in my voice and in my movement. And after I came home, I'll be exhausted for days, microanalyzing everything I said and trying to draw causal links between 
every minor things I said and the tiny little shift of facial expressions or body language in my conversation partner. That was my life for years. I was hypervigilant. I was hypersensitive. I was withdrawn sometimes. But now, I have the language for how I felt. I was lonely. I got so interested in this question, and I accepted Daniel as my PhD student, and we started this loneliness journey together. In the first year, we learned so much together and so much from each other. But in the meantime, the little virus has shocked the world and changed the way we live. Overnight, we were forced to live our life differently. We're forced to have a conversation on, on screen, on Zoom, instead of in person. We're forced to airwave instead of hug and hide our smiles behind our face masks. If there's anything that I can say as a silver lining of COVID, that is a fact that it taught us how important social connections are. All of a sudden, collectively, we know what it feels like to be lonely, and we start to talk about loneliness. You have to look quite far not to see headlines in the last couple of years linking loneliness to any of these outcomes you have seen here. And as Steve mentioned, even the Surgeon General has now paid full attention to loneliness as important health and social issues. So we know that loneliness has important mental, physical, and cognitive outcomes. But beyond all of these scary things that you see on the screen, loneliness is a social epidemic. Lonely individuals make lonely societies, and socially disconnected communities tend to have less trust, less resilience, less social capitals, and they feel less safe. So we need to start to talk about this as a social epidemic. I don't think I should be talking about loneliness all by myself, right? That's not your expectation when you walk into the room today. So there will be some interactions, and this will be the first audience interaction. It's a pause track in the, in the room. So I invite you to raise your hand if you have ever felt lonely. And keep your hands up if you felt lonely at some point last year. Thank you so much for your honesty, and congratulations for being human. <laughs> loneliness is such a common, if not universal, experience. It is that Saturday night blues when we were spending weekends alone, wishing that we had someone else to, to share the weekend with. It's the feeling that we wish we had known more people when we moved to a new city. So we have all experienced that at some point in our life. So before I'm going to define what loneliness is, I want to talk about what loneliness isn't. Loneliness is not a pathology. It's not an illness that needs to be cured or fixed. Loneliness is such a common experience. It's a feeling that all of us have as humans. Because we're social species, 
the sense of loneliness is imprinted in our DNA, so that we, when we're alone for too long, it's a signal for us to reach out for fellow human beings because we survive so much better as a group together. It has been compared to hunger when we reach out for food and thirst when we reach out for water. But it's important to keep in mind that there's a distinction between feeling lonely every now and then, as I mentioned earlier, which is what we call academic jargon, episodic loneliness, versus feeling lonely for extended period of time or all the time, which is what we call chronic loneliness. And all these illnesses that you see here, all the health problems, tend to be associated with a chronic loneliness, which what we consider as problematic. So, the next audience participation question: True or false? Loneliness affects one in three in the world. If you think it's true, please raise your hand. All right. Okay. Of course, as an academic, I'll give you a very long-winded answer. So we first saw this, the statistics first appear in a 2018 Lancet editorial calling attention to loneliness as a social epidemic, and in the early journey of our research, we saw this number, but we actually couldn't find the data where the mem uh, where the number was based on. Because as public health researchers, we really care about you know first defining how widespread a problem is. So when we couldn't really find the source of the data. We decided to go find the data ourselves. So, for two years of painstaking and lonely process, a lot of the time during lockdown, we systematically reviewed all the loneliness estimates at the population level from any countries that we can find in the world, and we meta-analyzed these findings. So, I'm just going to quickly show it to you here. So. Part of the exercise made us realize that there's really an inequality issue when we start to talk about loneliness, because while there are regions like Europe that we're blessed with such a plethora of data, there's a lot of low and middle-income countries that we know very little about. So that's our first observation. Then, when we're talking about prevalence in a region like Europe, we see huge differences. The first observation is, well, it looks like loneliness seems to be an um, experience that we feel differently at different stages of our life, and particularly in Europe, what it really stood out is the older age that loneliness is much higher. So that seems to be the case across different subregions within Europe. But the one thing that really fascinated me is when you start to look at areas like Northern Europe as compared with Eastern Europe, across all age groups. What we are seeing is about three to four times difference when it comes to loneliness prevalence. These countries are very different in many ways: Econo economic status, um, socio-demographic characteristic, culture, inequality, social safety net, and welfare system. So. All of these together contributed to this vast difference that we see from data from Europe. So I guess collectively we can never say that one in five or one in seven of us suffers from chronic loneliness because it really depends on where you are. Because loneliness is a social epidemic.
Next true or false question. Loneliness has significantly increased over time. Raise your hand if you think that's the case. Great. Thank you so much for participating. <laughs> so, in terms of loneliness, that's to me an obvious place to to go. You know, when we think about how our life has changed so dramatically in the last few decades, possibly more so than ever, we have. A large proportion of the population living alone, families are getting smaller, and the, the role that community organizations play, such as churches, has been diminishing over time. We hardly know our neighbors anymore, and we change our way of communicating with each other. So, you know, a lot of us think that loneliness must have increased over time as an unhealthy, as a health issue, and this has been the case when it comes to the time we spend with each other. At least based on the U.S. data, when researchers analyzed time use data over the last few decades, it occurred that more so than ever before, we spent time alone. But have we felt more lonely than ever? So. Again, as a scientist, we really want the data to answer the question. So Daniel and I, we, together with our colleagues, we look into、um, population representative data from the U.S. And what we found really surprised us. It looks like that in the U.S., at least in the older age group, loneliness has actually decreased over time, and that's the case both for episodic loneliness and for prolonged loneliness. But As scientists, we're always looking for caveats, and I think there is a couple of caveats there. First, even though our data has been, our, our finding has been replicated by other studies as well, it is important to acknowledge that because loneliness has been quite a new concept that researchers are interested in, we haven't been measuring loneliness for that long. So, at most twenty years. But we can't really have longer-term data for us to really play with the long-term trend. So that is a limitation, and hopefully, as time goes on, we can start to monitor that better. For another, because loneliness is such a subjective feeling, it is defined as the discrepancy between your ideal social relationship and the one you currently have. That is likely to be different over time because of the. The discourse in the society about loneliness, because of our culture, because of our expectation about what social relationships are like over time. So it is very likely that over the last 20 years, while we were analyzing the data, the definition of loneliness has changed, and、uh, therefore the response was not in the same direction as we anticipated. So, next question. True or false? If you think that some people are more prone to loneliness than others, thank you. Again, I'll give you a complicated response. <laughs> Michelle Lim et al. in 2020, in their、um, landmark paper, has defined loneliness as the consequence of risk factors interacting with triggers. So first, let me explain what triggers are. So triggers could be an individual experience, like losing a job or losing an intimate relationship, or it could be collective, like what we all went through in the last three years with repeated lockdowns and restrictions. 
risk factors, if you look into the literature, it seems to be quite consistent. So there are certain groups of our population that has appeared over and over again as lonely. So some age groups, as you have seen with the slides earlier, and uh, sociodemographic characteristic particularly associated with disadvantages. For example, low socioeconomic status, not working, living alone, being from a racial or ethnic minority, or being from the LGBTQI plus community, having chronic disease, having disabilities, the list goes on. As public health researchers, we love talking about risk factors because This is a way for us to identify who, as members of our society, requires more care, requires more resources and attention. With the public health hat on, I think that is the right approach. But as someone with a lived experience, I do have three personal reflections that I want to share with you. They're very personal, and uh, I. I hope to use that to challenge the way we think about the risk factors for loneliness. Number one, when we talk about who are at risk, perhaps our understanding has been limited by our presumptions about who are at risk, or our inability to measure our human. Feeling and experience accurately. So I'm going to elaborate a little bit here. I'll give you an example about age, because when you go into literature, it often talks about yeah, loneliness. The young and the old they tend to be the one who are at risk. Adolescents, young adults, going through transitions in their life, moving through new environment and new challenges, struggling with self-identity. That is a really vulnerable age. For loneliness, I agree. And similarly, for older adults, we tend to think about well, they've also gone through important challenges in their life, and they might be empty nesters. They may, they might have just retired or lost their spouse. So yeah, that is a very vulnerable time. But when Daniel and I were looking into the data, it doesn't seem to always add up. First. Somehow, because we assume that the middle-aged adults are doing well because they tend to be married, in a good job, busy with their life, having a successful career and raising children, they must not be lonely. But we actually don't have the data to say that. In a very small number of countries where there are data, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like they're just as equally at risk as other age groups. So perhaps our Presumptions about who is at risk has reinforced what we identify as risk factors. I'll give you another example. We often see in the literature that women tend to be more at risk of loneliness when compared with men, and the data really seems to stack up that way. But these data tend to come from studies that ask directly, "Have you ever felt lonely like what I did at the beginning?" Of the talk, but if you start to ask indirectly, like, "Are you happy with your social relationships? Can you easily confide with people?" 
These are actually the more preferred question to capture loneliness. And when we start to ask that way, it looks like men are at least equally at risk. So somehow women are more in tune with their feeling of loneliness and label it as lonely or being more willing to accept that they're lonely. And this is not just a gender issue. If we can see such a distinction here, then we suspect that in subgroup of our societies where they feel more stigmatized to acknowledge that they're lonely, then we might actually not be measuring their loneliness properly. And my second reflection is, when we talk about risk factor, we talk about who, who are at risk. But a lot of these risk factors are actually dynamic through our lifestyle. Thinking about having a job versus not having a job, being in a relationship versus not being in a relationship, having illness or disability versus not. Any of these, we can slip into that category at any point in our life. So it is something that is probably more about when rather than who. I think it's important to acknowledge that because it takes away our feelings of us versus them, you know, we're at risk, you're not, and vice versa, because we're all united in our shared vulnerability to loneliness. And I have my third reflection. When we talk about risk factors, we tend to label the individuals. But loneliness is a social epidemic, as I just described, and it has a lot to do with how we build a society inclusively, all aspects of our environment, our social environment, our physical environment, our information environment, and how that makes us feel as individuals within the environment. Give you an example. I have been following the literature in ableism and ageism, and I, what I really like their frame of thinking is that we used to think that ageism tend to be more about the individual, but now we start to change the conversation into thinking that in an ideal environment, if a city, a society is built for all ages, you shouldn't feel limited by your age at all. You shouldn't feel limited by disability at all. Could we perhaps apply the same to loneliness? Could it be that the way that we value social connection, the way we make social connections, the, the way that we make ourselves feel accepted by the society can be hindered or facilitated by the environment that we live in. And I often think about my own personal experience back in the days when I was in the States. If I didn't live in such a car-dependent society where I have to drive from A to B and not see a human face on the whole way, if the society had more trust and less social division, if, as someone who studied in Southern California, didn't buy into this Hollywood culture where being popular or being socially accepted means that I have to be white, beautiful, wealthy, at least with wealthy parents, extroverted, would my experience be different? So, again, 
I just want all of us to think about loneliness as a social epidemic rather than the problem for the individual. So these are three interesting angles that we have been looking at loneliness. Some of the findings might surprise you, others might not. But before we end the talk today, I, I do want all of us to have some collective reflection as what we should do moving forward. First, as researchers, we have been so meticulous about how we measure every single nutrient and food ingredients on our plate. And for someone like me, I have been so obsessed about measuring every single minute of an intensity of physical activity that we do. But perhaps we forgot to ask who we have that dinner with and who we exercise with. The WHO defined health not as an absence of illness, but as a holistic well-being defined as physical, mental, and social health. Somehow, social health has been in my and many researchers' blind spot. Perhaps this is the time for us to bring it back. Second, as individuals, we now know what loneliness feels like, and we understand that loneliness can be different at different stages in our life, and it could be different for one person as compared with the other person. And I hope that that commonality that we share will destigmatize our conversation about loneliness to give us less judgment and more compassion towards ourselves and towards each other. And I also hope that coming out of the pandemic for all of us, we learn to reorient what are the important things in life. We get so caught up in this constant cycle of production and consumption, whether that's producing more papers, bringing more income, earning more respect. But what are we doing this for if we don't have anywhere to share time with? So the same way as we schedule time for our exercise routines, for a doctor's appointment, could we do the same about our social relationships and make sure that we don't forget that we're human beings and, and the social species? Finally, as a society together, I think it's really important for us to, to stop and think and constantly rethink about how we can build this environment that facilitates a feeling of belongings and make, especially for the vulnerables, think about our built environment, social environment, information environment, and wherever you are, the space around you and be kind to each other, be understanding to each other, and to ourselves. Because, as we know, loneliness might come and go in our lives, and all of us have that feeling. You might be interested in how my story went, and I'm going to tell you the part two of my story. So, in my time in the U.S., it took some very special, beautiful souls for me to feel connected. 
but I had a very small number of friends. They are the very few people who took an interest in my culture and who I am, which is very different from the majority of the people around me. And about ten and a half years ago, I moved to Australia, and my lifestyle was completely different. Instead of driving everywhere, I cycle and I take public transport. I have opportunities and the time to smile at strangers without feeling weird. <laughs> and I found a sense of strong sense of belonging to the scientific communities through all the colleagues and collaborators here and around the world. I have a beautiful team. Some of them are here that we feel like a family together. And I'm connected to women in STEM, in in the future leaders of scientific research, a lovely group of women that make me feel like no matter where I am, I'm a part of the gang. And and even the icing on cake is that I found a, my sewing club, <laughs> even through <laughs> creative pursuit.、Um, Some of them are here today. A lovely group of、um, enthusiastic, enthusiastic amateur dancers that we spend our creative time together. And really, you can find us any street in random times, performing to the public and sharing very our very deep vulnerability together. So this is my story of loneliness. What is your story like? Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources, or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. <laughs>